it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Have you ever wondered why we call French fries French fries? Or why something is the greatest thing since sliced bread? There are answers to those questions. Everything Everywhere Daily is a podcast for curious people who want to learn more about the world around them. Every day, you'll learn something new about things you never knew you didn't know. Subjects include history, science, geography, mathematics, and culture. If you're a curious person and want to learn more about the world you live in, just subscribe to Everything Everywhere Daily wherever you cast your pod. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. This is episode 84. Tonight, Andrew and I are going to do a two-parter here. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, the DuPont analysis. And the reason why we're going to talk about this is we got a great question from Facebook that Andrew and I wanted to answer on air, but we wanted to talk you guys through what the DuPont analysis was so that when we answer the question, it kind of makes sense to you guys. So for those of you who are not familiar with DuPont analysis, I'll raise your hand. Okay, that's everybody. All right, so this is something that is not talked about a lot, and it's a very interesting analysis. And what it is, in a nutshell, is it's a breakdown of the return on equity. And Andrew, I'm going to have you talk a little bit about return on equity, and then we can kind of talk a little bit about how this analysis kind of decomposes that. Yeah, sure. Uh, If you were to ask me that question yesterday, I would have had my hand up too. So, (laughs) yeah. Definitely not aware of it. Um, definitely aware of return on equity, so that obviously helps a lot. We've turned. Well, we've talked about return on equity before. We had an episode in the archives where we talked about some of the efficiency ratios, return on assets, return on equity. So that episode might be a good supplement to this one, and maybe if you listen to those back to back, get a better understanding. I know it's not that easy to learn these kind of advanced topics through a podcast, but I think the more exposure you get to it whether that's through a podcast or through reading or just writing out some exercises or trying to do them uh, with some companies and stocks that are out there, then the more and more you can learn and, and kind of digest it. Um, so like you said, Dave, uh, DuPont analysis is a breakdown of the return on equity and it essentially breaks it down into three parts. So 
why it's called DuPont is because um, there's a there's a company. It's not it's still public. Um, it's called DuPont. Now it merged with Dow Chemicals, and now it's called Dow DuPont. But there were three gentlemen there, and they came up. Basically, they wanted to figure out how how to kind of take the return on equity and take it to the next step. Um, so if you have, for example, if you have a company with a lower return on equity, you can break the return on equity down to these three pieces. And so if, if, if you see that your company's return on equity is lagging compared to its competitors, breaking it down in this way can help you kind of identify where's the pain point, why is it lagging, and how can we attack it? Um, and, and so we'll get a little bit deeper into that. I like it because it was actually an electrical engineer who first kind of came up with the idea. And then these three guys from DuPont back in the 1920s ended up kind of making it popular. And now it's um, like you'll hear in the question from this guy on Facebook, it's it's part of the CFA level one course. So um, CFA, I, I think it stands for what? Chartered Financial Analyst? Yes. Basically... <laughs> I, I see the CFA as like the MBA of the business world. Um, some circles require it if they're going to hire you. Some circles really look at it really highly and other circles don't care. And there's lots of businessmen who are successful who don't have an MBA. I think the CFA is very similar to that. But that's kind of the background of DuPont and why we're going to talk about it and why it can be helpful and useful. And that's so that's why they break it down to these three parts. And so I think we should talk about each of these three parts separately and try to give you some insight on it. So <clears throat> return on, on equity, you can break it up into th- into three pieces. The way you can do this, I'll, I'll explain this with a simple math problem because it is a math problem. Um, return on equity is obviously net income divided by shareholders equity. We're just trying to see how much profits you make from the equity you have, which is the same as the book value. It's the difference between your assets and your liabilities. Um, if you think about a math problem where you have two fractions, let's say you have one one over two, right? And you multiply it by, let's say, two over three. You have the two on the denominator and the two in the numerator, and those two cancel out. And so that's really what's happening when we're breaking down the DuPont analysis into these three parts with return on equity. Uh, There's three financial metrics. When you do the multiplications, they will kind of cancel each other out. So that's how you'll get the net income divided by the shareholder's equity. Um, But breaking it out in this way, again, helps us kind of be more specific on, on what's going on with a particular business. So the first part of return on equity is return on sales. And that is simply the net income divided by the revenue. So that first component's return on sales. Basically, the equation for that is net income divided by revenue. What you're trying to find out is basically how efficient a business plan is. So what, you know, when you have the revenue, that's the top line. This is how much money you're bringing in. And then it's going to cost money to to bring that revenue in, right? So let's say we're selling a cool widget. It's going to cost us like 20 bucks to manufacture that widget. We brought in 30 bucks. So we have $20 of expenses. Uh, maybe we have some more expenses. We have to pay um, 
you know, obviously we have to pay taxes. We have to pay for uh, our employees, blah, 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 blah. You go down the line and from that revenue sprinkles all the way down and you have net income at the bottom profit. So when you combine those two, a higher return on sales uh, is basically you, you can think of, they talk about it like margin, uh, gross margin, net margin, uh, profit margin. I'm sure you've heard. If you can, if you can't tell, like when you when you start getting into financial statements, there's a lot of terms that mean the same thing. Uh, two different terms that mean the same thing. I think that makes things really confusing for people. That's that's why a lot of times I try to say, you know, book value or shareholders equity. Hopefully, just through repetition, you can start to understand these things and and kind of process them. But you know, when we're talking about margins, gross margin net margin, return on sales, what you're basically figuring out is what kind of products does this company sell and um, how profitable are those products? You think about something like uh, an easy example would be an oil rig. Obviously, um, like an Exxon Mobile, it's going to cost them a lot of money to drill that oil out of the ground. And so they're going to need to bring in a ton of sales in order to come up with enough money to pay those expenses and um, have a profit at the end of that. And then on the flip side, if you think of a, a business like Facebook where um, you know they, they just have to maintain a website, maybe they have some computer engineers, some, some computer science coders that they need to pay for to maintain the website. Um, but they can have a lot of profit and they don't need to invest in expensive equipment. And so their return on sales can be much, much higher. This is something that because of that definition and how I said it, it can really depend on what industry it is. And so just because you see a business that has a higher return on sales than another business, it doesn't necessarily mean that's better. But um, when you compare like inside of an industry, you can see which companies in that industry are maybe doing a better job at being more efficient, uh, making that revenue and turning it into profits. You, you can maybe pick up on companies that are really good at, at keeping expenses low uh, or if they're able to, to be profitable in other ways. It's a nice thing. I think it gives some context. I don't think it's it's an end-all, be-all. And that's really true for the return on equity ratio as well. But uh, when it comes to return on sales, that's kind of something that you can glean out of that and um, look at. And so if you have, let, for example, if I was somebody who owned a business or I was the management of, of a stock and, and I saw that our return on equity was lower than others, and I did the DuPont analysis and I saw our, our return on sales is lower than others, well, then I I would... I would kind of know that okay, maybe it's it's a good time to cut some of our expenses and um, do do some cost cutting, and maybe that can bring our return on equity up, which brings earnings per share up, net earnings up. All the earnings numbers will tend to go up uh, when you cut costs, and that can be very good for the stock. So that's really like the first major component of return on equity is the return on sales. Exactly, and. Segwaying into the next component of this uh, formula that we're talking about or this analysis that we're talking about is 
the sales versus the assets or the asset turnover ratio. Uh, this is a ratio that is another efficiency measurement, and it's used to determine how effectively a company uses its assets to generate revenue. Uh, so the formula is pretty simple. You just take a asset turnover ratio is divided by, so you take the total revenue and you divide it by its total assets. And generally, the higher this number is, the better the company is performing. Because like Andrew was talking about with the sales, you're looking at those sales and comparing it to the assets that the company has. Now, uh, Andrew was talking about an oil company. I'll, I'll think of somebody like Hormel, who has, you know, they have physical assets in that they have plants to process uh, the meats that they work with. They also have farms to farm the, you know, to grow, to grow, to, you know, to breed and to, you know, you know, get the cows and everything ready for what they're. And so those are, those are all assets and those are, you know, not necessarily fixed in the livestock area, but certainly the plants and the farms and the land that they own and things of that nature that, you know, processing plants and such, all that stuff is going to be, is going to be assets. And when you're looking at the sales versus that, so the higher the ratio is, the the better that the company is using those assets to create, you know, a better, you know, efficiency ratio. And this is part of the analysis. And one of the things that I wanted to mention about the the analysis is, you know, Andrew was right on the mark about when you're looking at different uh, companies in the same industry and you're breaking down why the company is doing better or worse than companies in its in its um, same area, in the same industry, these different components that we're looking at can be positive or negative. And generally, when you're seeing either the net margin or the asset turnover ratio increase, those are all really good things because it means that the company is being more efficient and it's based on their sales and also based on the their assets that they're using. And so these can be positive things and you can see the changes in those as you're going through your, you know, analysis of these different companies. So let's say that you're looking at, I'll use Hormel again. So let's say we're looking at Hormel. And over the course of time, you see that their return on equity is increasing. So as you start to break it down using the DuPont analysis, if you can see that the asset turnover ratio is improving, that means that the company is getting better at using their assets that they already have. And if they're using money to invest in those assets and creating more assets and their ratio keeps improving, this is going to help improve their return on equity. And this is, you know, a great, uh, this is a great aspect of this this analysis that we can use. So the first two that we've talked about can definitely be very, very strong pluses. So Andrew, why don't you talk about the equity multiplier? When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. 
As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out The Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s. Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field, and we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, sure. Uh, also known as assets divided by equity. So basically what this is is... is what I always talk about with my debt to equity ratio and I call it my debt to equity ratio because I calculate it using <laughs> maybe a little bit more conservatively than, than some other people like to, I like to 
consider debt as all liabilities and not just what's commonly known as debt. But uh, in the same token, what you're trying to figure out here is how much assets to the equity they have. So real quick, uh, just as a refresher, the way that you calculate equity is is you take your assets and you subtract the liabilities and that's how you get your equity. So you would do the same with like a more some of these mortgage, right? You have the the uh, however much the mortgage costs, I'm sorry, however much the house is valued at, however much is left on the mortgage and then whatever what the difference of that is is your equity. So with companies it's the exact same thing. The reason why this is different from debt to equity is it's just flipping the ratio, right? So a high debt to equity is bad. Uh, in this case, high assets compared to your equity is good. And the debt part, the liabilities part, that gets factored in to the, the denominator, the equity part. So obviously, like I said, more is better and it can contribute to a higher return on equity. All right. So if you think about the equity part, right? And this is where I'm going to kind of give a caveat and maybe I get a little too into the weeds. I play a little bit of devil's advocate like I like to do, but this is where I think, in my opinion, the return on equity formula can kind of break down and why I say it's not like an end-all be-all. For sure, when you see rising return on equity, that's a fantastic thing to see. You can also see that, though, um, by companies who are selling off assets. So if you think about return on equity and you think uh, how it has net income on the top and equity on the bottom, if, if you're reducing that equity, it, it pushes your return on equity up, uh, even though the net income doesn't change. And so a company could be getting smaller and actually their, their future profitability could be worse, um, but the return on equity would look better. So when you see increasing return on equity, you also want to see an increasing shareholders' equity book value along with that. Uh, that that will kind of be like a good a good catch, right? Like let's make sure that okay, um, this is truly growth and, and real business growth and, and a good indicator for future profitability. So that's one of the like extra steps you can take to see one good metric and confirm that it is. In fact, telling you what what you want it to tell you, and I think you can do that with a lot of financial ratios. You don't need to to go even in depth like this, where it's like three steps. I I really think you don't need to go more than like two or three steps when it comes to something where you can see something that looks good, and then if you just take it another step further, and we're we're going to check one other thing, and that can kind of complete the picture in a way where you can see uh, and and make good decisions on on whether something improved or not so return on equity kind of increasing or decreasing can be that way so in this sense um this part of the return on equity obviously you can drive this up by having more assets and um having lower equity so there there's an up and down to this uh the upside is because it's like a leverage ratio, it's it's taking into account um, how much debt's being borrowed. So there's obviously two camps. There's and especially today in, in the low interest rate environment we're in, there's the camp of people who say, well, you know, interest rates are so low, you need to lock in and, and load up on debt because it's a low interest rate, and, and you're kind of taking advantage of that, and it can kind of unlock 
more earnings. Obviously, when you have more debt, uh, you get to spend that debt and, and you can use it to, to create more earnings. On the flip side, you have the boring people like me who are way, way conservative. I like to sleep my seven and a half to eight and a half hours per night and have it not interrupted by thinking about the stock market. Hasn't happened yet, so that's good. But you know, I'm very, very anti-debt. And the way I see it is... And, and the way that the idea of the people who are in this camp see it is that um, debt is a liability. And when you're paying debt payments every month, then the risks when times get tough that you can't make those debt payments can make you default and things can really spiral out of control. And so that's like, you know, the one side and the other side. I think one fantastic example of this is long-term capital management. Um, we, we've touched briefly about them before, but they were a fund, a hedge fund that really loaded up on debt and based on their models and their analysis, everything everything was so low risk. So they had done all these kind of tests on, on what's happened historically and they, they figured out, you know, by being very clever about generally how high something could go, how low it could go. And then they made a lot of bets based on that. And then they used leverage to amplify it because they were only picking up little pieces of, of return, maybe like uh, two-tenths of a percent or something on a trade. But when you lever it up and, and you add debt to it, then you can really magnify it. And so they're they're picking up these little breadcrumbs, basically. But because they had leverage, they were able to, to pick up handfuls, right? But the problem was, was they didn't account their risk models didn't account for an extreme kind of black swan type of case. So Nassim Tlaib talked about this in his uh, book Black Swan. But essentially, when when you're investing in the stock market and putting money at risk in general, there are just certain I think they're called like six sigma events. These events where they're completely unpredictable, maybe unprecedented. We've never seen them before that can hit at any time and, and most people don't account for them and, and a lot of people get burned by it. And so it was actually that that Six Sigma event of, of this financial crisis which, which put prices at such a range where it was way outside of where long-term capital management's risk models had, had even thought that it could go. And because they were leveraged, they the impact of that money loss was just multiplied just like their returns were. And, and it, it it was so great that, that they ended up going bankrupt. And, and these are all smart dudes. These were all guys with like PhDs and stuff. So uh, really big, smart finance dudes. They're all really well known. And, and, you know, the metaphor goes, you know, they were picking up little breadcrumbs, but they were doing it in front of an oncoming train. And so that's kind of, you know, an extreme case, but but an example of what can happen with leverage Obviously, I think a lot of businesses out there, they, they tend to balance it well where they have reasonable leverage levels, maybe reasonable debt compared to their assets and, and equity and, and things of that nature. But, you know, something to keep in mind, I think um, maybe you can find this third part of the DuPont analysis can maybe explain if, if you combine it with some other things. So maybe it can explain, wow, why is this business doing uh, let's say it has a 30% return on equity. The rest of the businesses in their industry only has a 20%. Why is this business so great uh, at return on um, the return on equity? And then, and then if you see on this 
this third component, the leverage component, that that is much higher than you think. Oh well, okay, they're able to do that now, but are they going to be able to sustain that? Especially uh, now that they have a lot of leverage, they have a lot of debt. They're going to have to make a lot of interest payments and debt payments in the future. And on the flip side, you can see why does this business have such a low return on equity? And you can again look at this third component, the assets divided by the equity. And if you see it maybe being much lower than their competitors, then you can get some insight. Okay, maybe they're just very, very conservative. And that might turn you off and that might be okay too, depending on how far and which camp you lie. But that's just some examples. Uh, Those are the three main components. That's some examples of how you can use some of these parts of the DuPont formula analysis to, 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 to take a deeper dive. And it's what these uh, CFAs are required to know. And it's it's good. I mean, uh, things like asset turnover that Dave mentioned, that's something that's big um, for the, the people that are running the business, the people in the operations. And so that's one last kind of part of the DuPont that I want to cover real quick is basically, uh, depending on which which part of this you go and you can actually break it down into five steps. Well, I don't think we should do that today, but uh, depending on which component it, it falls in, whether it's the first, second or third, somebody who is an owner of the business can identify which part of the business needs focus. So if the asset turnover is, is really weak compared to the other two components and that's what's dragging our return on equity, then uh, because we know it's asset turnover and that has to do with operations, then we can know that, okay, it's it's the managers of the operations that, that need to improve this. Uh, other examples is like the one I just covered with the leverage. That That's like in the finance camp. So those are the, the um, people who are making the financial decisions of the company. And so it could be you know, the operating business inside the core business model could be doing fine, but because they have poor capital allocators, they have poor um, poor decision making going on in the finance department, then that can, you know, obviously cripple net earnings or or any of those other things. And so this can identify, okay, if we see a problem with, with the leverage part, then that can be a finance issue. Same thing with the return on sales. Uh, that gets broken down, and there's part of it that has to do with management, but you have um, also the tax burden and the interest burden. And so if those aren't being managed well, then that can be something that, okay, this was a finance problem instead of an operation problem. And that can be something that maybe it's not relevant for us because we're most of us probably aren't on the board of directors and making these big decisions for these companies. But I think it really helps to obviously put yourself in the owner's shoes and maybe make better decisions on stocks and give yourself more insight on what a company's return on equity is really telling us and getting insight on maybe why, you know, you're kind of taking it to that next step. You're, you're, you're maybe more separating the operating from uh, some of the capital allocation decisions and, and, like an example I can think of where where maybe this can can really help an investor is if you you see a big catalyst where maybe management's getting completely replaced or a lot of uh, 
let's say a lot of other pieces of the business are being replaced, but the core business is staying, you can kind of look back and see how the core operating business contributed to the return on equity and how maybe some of the finance industry uh, decisions kind of contributed to it. And maybe you can make yourself feel better about going one way or another with a stock because you've seen, okay, well, this, you know, the, the guy who is leading the finance department in this company, he was really bad, but they just replaced him. Plus, I really like the valuations of this business. And so I see it as a good comeback kind of stock. You, you can use, you can definitely use DuPont to, to do something like that. Or you can look at a business and say, okay, well, they're divesting a lot of their business. They've sold off a lot of assets. Um, historically, the return on equity hasn't been great, but you know their asset turnover is great. So maybe the core business is doing fine. And so maybe you know I feel really good about that business moving forward. And I see it as a comeback story too. So I, there's so many things you can do with the DuPont analysis. I think those are just a few examples. And I think any sort of activity that puts you into the financial statements and has you thinking about some of the main metrics and numbers and anything to really make you look at a 10K, I think it only improves and makes you better as an investor. And I hope it, you know, I hope we cover it as good or, or better than they would cover it in like a CFA course. Um, and hopefully it's helped some people out there. And maybe we should answer the questions now. Okay. Sounds good. All right. So let's take a look at the question here. Okay. So the question is, hey, so I've been listening to your podcast for the better part of this year now, and this is actually the first time I've ever contacted a person on a podcast. All right. First, a little bit about me. I am studying my master's in applied finance in Australia, Perth, and I'm sitting for my CFA level one next June 2019. I find your podcast extremely helpful, especially when it comes to interpreting ratios and stock valuation methods. Hey you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. I am wondering if this is still a valuable decomposition of ROE or return on equity, given the increase of online business models and companies' negative networking capital makes leverage almost non-existent. Do you believe this will eventually be outdated? And is there any other suggestions to break down ROE when it comes to light asset structure companies with little to no debt? In addition, how valuable is this decomposition when companies are in the pre-earnings stage? All right. Well, yes and no. <laughs> um, like he makes good points, but um, based on what I've seen in the market, it's not like black and white, like 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 um, like this is sounding like. So obviously, we do have these tech businesses that are able to turn much higher profit margins. Um, going back to the example I used earlier, like Facebook doesn't need a lot of capital upkeep. But you still have the realities of running a business and everything that that entails. So when you talk about a business like a Facebook or a Twitter, you know, any of these kind of online businesses, yes, in theory, they don't need as much leverage, but a lot of them do. And so you have to think about what's the 
what's the thing that's um i guess not like what's the competitive advantage but what's the hurdle that these companies need to jump over in order to kind of compete right so for facebook it is the acquiring of all these global users i think for a business to try to compete against that they would have to obviously bring a lot of attention and eyeballs to a new platform and get them to log in every day like people do on Facebook. That would cost a lot of money. And so you have businesses like Netflix, for example, where they, if you think about it, they're just hosting, you know, they're hosting shows and they're making these deals with, with other media businesses. They Nobody said they had to um, create content. You can argue whether that was a good, good idea or not. But you know, they, here's an example of a business where they have very high profit margins in the sense that the equipment doesn't cost a lot of money to keep up and maintain. You don't need to have these huge factories or drill bits or anything like that. But you know, they're choosing to spend a lot in order to try to compete and get better and grow, grow at faster rates. If you look at Facebook today, um, I just saw a commercial on TV the other day where they're actually m- making this tablet that looks really cool, by the way. But basically, it j- you just set it somewhere in your house and then you press one button and you can video conference with somebody else. Uh, you know, obviously anywhere, anybody else. I don't know if they have to have this same Facebook tablet or if, or if it can be on the phone. But it's cool because. Um, it's so convenient and and obviously you get the bigger screen they're showing on the commercial, how you have your, your hands are free so you can kind of be doing other things. And so Facebook has a lot, very high profit margin and a lot of earnings, but they're reinvesting in these other more capital intensive businesses. And you know, that, that could lead to more leverage and, and things of that nature. So yes. Um, there are these businesses that are not as capital intensive. However, we are still investors and we still see what's on the balance sheet on the income statement. And these are all businesses that are all competing. So, you know, if something's really that cheap and that easy to manufacture, well, it's going to draw a lot of competitors and that's going to drive profit margins down. There's, there's just no like perfect business model. There's no perfect, um, idea that you know leverage will ever be non-existent i think it's like it's like ammo that's just sitting there for these people who run these companies that you know they get financially incentivized if if they can really push earnings per share up in a really quick way and if it just takes using some of that ammo to do it and maybe they won't be around in 10 years anyways to see the negative effects of that i think that's always in play so a lot of different reasons and ways that something that maybe initially is a high margin business can become lower margin business. I think just the way that general investment dollars work, there's, there's just not going to be this. I don't see this idea of a new, a new economy. Like if that happens, it's going to take so many decades, but this new economy where there's so little equity and so much profits and cash flow that we don't need to use a return on equity ratio anymore. I don't see that happening for a long, long time. And 
I think if if you go back to the episode we did on what drives what what do we call it like what drives share price growth or something something of that nature we're talking about where that ten percent seven percent growth rate comes from that you generally hear about in the stock market you know there's there's always a reality that money's always going to be money's always going to try to make itself compound and grow better and faster and so you know you you always have capital competing on itself <clears throat> uh competing with itself and it's just a huge global marketplace of of competition and so you know that that can drive return return on equity down that can make leverage beneficial the components that break that make up return on equity even though there may be companies out there that are asset light like he was referring to they're still going to have higher profit margins and their shareholder, they're still going to have shareholder equity, and that's never going to go away just because they're an asset light company. You know, the other two components of the DuPont analysis are still going to be in play. And, you know, just looking at numbers here on Facebook, you know, you can see that their return on equity is really high. It's 25.73%. And the majority of that is being driven by the, sales ratio so their net income versus their revenue is you know 37 percent you know compared to when i was looking at hormel which is you know like 10 percent. so i mean that's a huge difference yeah and, and you always see those differences i think it's like there's no i'm sure when hormel was kind of a booming part of a booming kind of food industry uh mm-hmm. their profit margins were probably much much higher you know, back then, and now it's kind of matured and 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 become now that food's more of a commodity and so much easier, easierly made, <laughs> mm-hmm. easierly made, it, it it's it's driven margins down. And so he also asks, um, how valuable is this decomposition when companies are in the pre-earning stage? Sounds like he's trying to like trick question us, <laughs> like <laughs> oh, gotcha. But you know, obviously, you can't really use it that well if 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 a company has negative earnings. Um, that's that's going to be really hard to do. And so when he, when he refers to pre earnings stage, I'm assuming he's talking about this idea that uh, you have growth when you have a life cycle of a company. You have growth stage. You have the kind of maturing, um, maybe more developing stage. You have the maturing stage and like kind of saturation, and then maybe a decline. So there's this idea that. You know, you see it in the venture capital world where turning a profit's not even a goal, you know, and, and it's all about just creating revenue growth and, and making the business bigger and better so that one day it can be profitable. So I just think it's it's kind of, I don't see the point in answering the question because uh, I don't invest in any sort of like pre-earning stage businesses or stocks and i don't think it's a good endeavor for people to make it's it's almost like lottery ticket investing in a way you don't have reliable earnings you can't really know how profitable if you can't know how profitable it is now how are you going to know if it's ever profitable in the future so yeah i don't think that the dupont would really be useful for companies in that stage and i don't think we should be looking at them as investments anyways i would agree with that and i think 
you know, a, a, an example that springs to mind when we're thinking of that is Spotify. Uh, they just recently went public and they're losing money hand over fist. And it's all about growing. It's all about growing their subscriber base and growing their revenue. It's not about becoming a profitable company at this point. And anybody that's investing in it and the other businesses and companies that have invested in it, like the venture capital that Andrew was mentioning, that's really their whole goal is to build it up big enough that at some point it will start to you know, become a profitable company. And one could have argued, you know, 10 years ago, that was kind of the stage that Amazon was in, uh, that they were kind of in the same kind of boat and, you know, they might still sort of be in that boat a little bit. And so in those respects, it's not really a useful analysis because like Andrew is saying, everything's negative, you know, except for the, you know, they may be building up some assets, but you know, the revenue and their earnings and the free cash flow, it's all going to be negative because everything is going to build, 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 as opposed to creating, you know, wealth for the shareholders. And so in that respect, it is kind of a trick question because it's not really something that you can really use for those, you know, those types of companies. It's not really because it's, it's going to be negative. I love that example you you provided with Spotify. I think that's another. You would think it kind of answers the first part of the question because you would think, well, how how costly can it really be to to have an app? I mean, if you know anything about app development, you kind of spend the money up front, you develop the app, you put it on the app store, and then if you can get it to be popular, then it doesn't cost much to to keep that maintained and and have it get updated. So there's a company who are you would think. While it's an online business and and it has, it should have you know no leverage because it, you don't need as much expenses as a more capital intensive business. That's obviously not the case, and it's broken down. And I think regular financial metrics like ROE can kind of help you determine. Wow, yeah, this isn't a successful company. This is a company that's doing making poor decisions, as my daughter would say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, folks. Well, that is going to wrap up our discussion for tonight. I hope you enjoyed our analysis of the DuPont analysis and breaking down the three stages of it and looking at it a little more in depth. Hopefully you find the value in that and how it can really illuminate to you really where the power or not power of return on equity is coming from. And one of the things I wanted to mention about this is whenever you're looking at a a simple ratio like a return on equity or return on assets, it's always good to kind of look at the parts to see where this is really being generated from to make sure that when you're looking at a high number that there's really something of benefit for you as the investor in that. And so without any further ado, we're going to go ahead and sign off. You guys go out there and have a great week. Invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and we'll talk to you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional.
Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.